Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1199. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 6. This is being recorded on August 13th of the year 2021. Before we plunge back into the subject material, let me uh, remind you of three important links at the top of each program description and at the top of each Food for Thought post. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the comments made by mostly by our expert contributing editor, Terrafractlets, P-T-E-R-R-A-F-R-A-C-T-Y-L, and also some other uh, intelligent and important comments uh, by knowledgeable listeners as well. The second link will enable you to obtain the podcast of For the Record that is being made by sister station WFMU. So if podcasting is the best way for you to obtain the program, then please click on that link. And again, uh, WFMU is podcasting the program. And last but certainly not least, another of those links will enable you to get the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my roughly 42 years of broadcasting plus written descriptions plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books uh, that is through for the record program number 1156 and uh, again I get no money whatsoever from that flash drive. Now we're going to plunge right in where we left off in our last program and uh, we're going to, or I'm deliberately overlapping this with the material from the last uh, program uh, for purposes of continuity. Now we have been talking about the milieu of Chiang Kai-shek who was uh, at a fundamental level a front for the powerful green gang of Shanghai. That was a drug smuggling cartel that supplied most of the drugs to the U.S. and much of the rest of the world. It collaborated with the fascist Japanese during World War II as did Chiang Kai-shek, by the way. And uh, another important element of this uh, concatenation is the Sung family, that's capital S-O-O-N-G. T-V, as in Thomas Victor Sung, was at one point the richest man in the world, reported to be the largest stockholder in uh, General Motors and or DuPont Chemicals. And he and his Older sister A. Ling, a true uh, Lucretia Borgia of China, so to speak, a brilliant Machiavellian, sinister, and altogether deadly woman who uh, was reported to run teams of assassins. She was married to H. H. Kung, about whom we'll say more later, who was uh, at various times... Chiang Kai-shek and the Green Gang and the Kuomintang's chief banker. He was deeply corrupt, and uh, it was A. Ling and H. H. Kung who arranged for T.V. Sung's youngest sister, or younger sister, uh, Mei Ling Sung, to marry Chiang Kai-shek. She became the storied Madam Chiang Kai-shek. She was turned into a uh, veritable Virgin Mary uh, by Henry Luce. Uh, more about him in a minute. But we're going to uh, review uh, some of the dealings of T.D. Sung. Now, he was, a, in the U.S., a prestigious 
businessman. And, uh, he, because of that, he was enamored, he, he was basically lionized by, uh, Henry Luce and his Time Incorporated, Time Magazine and Life Magazine, uh, lionized not only T.B. Sung, but generally some of Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang Kai-shek, who appeared on the cover of Time twice, uh, in the same, uh, slip skirt dress as, uh, Sterling Seagrave put it, uh, fulfilling all of the Orientalist fantasies of, uh, some of the, uh, Time uh, aficionados. But the dealings of T.V. Sung with the narco-fascist government uh, that was anchored by Pu Yuexing, uh, turning once again to the book that we've used so many times, and this will provide the bulk of our pro- of our program material uh, during this series, and that is the Sung Dynasty. Again, that is a capital S-O-O-N-G. Dynasty, authored by Sperling Seagrave, published in hardcover by Harper and Row, and copyright 1985 by Sperling Seagrave, as we looked at in the early part of this series, and as we will come back to at the end. Uh, a hit team was put together in 1985 by the in the Tang dominated Taiwan to come kill the Seagraves. A senior CIA official tipped off the Seagraves, saying, I would take this very seriously if I were you. So they decamped to a sailboat that was built by Sterling Seagraves from scratch, and they lived on that for quite some time and kept moving and stayed ahead of the hit team, which uh, murdered uh, Henry Liu, a Chinese-American journalist in San Francisco. Now, uh, before we turn to Henry Luce uh, and his lionization of tycoons and also of fascist strongmen, Henry Luce uh, and his publishing empire at Pine Incorporated, arguably the most important publishing uh, magnate of his time, and indeed in, in uh, recent American history, uh, turning to TV song. To minimize confrontations between the Green Gang and the Kuomintang government in Nanking, there had to be careful liaison between their opium field personnel. Nanking sanctioned the close cooperation of its navy and police forces with the Green Gang. Demand even then outstripped domestic supply. Shanghai police reports indicated in 1930, TV Song personally arranged with Tu Yuasheng to deliver 700 cases of Persian opium to Shanghai under Kuomintang military protection to supplement depleted Chinese stocks. All parties involved in setting up the shipment and protecting it during transit, including TV, received fees. Time magazine carried a breezy little squib in April of 1931 about TV's plans for opium and uh, stabilizing the Nanking Treasury. Finance Minister TV Sung cheerfully declared last week that China will soon have a, quote, new and realistic opium policy, unquote. A, quote, realistic, unquote, opium policy, according to Minister Sung, cannot be one of prohibition. Consequently, Chinese Treasury officials have been sent to Formosa to study Japan's opium system. Restricted sales under government monopoly. If shrewd Minister Sung does harness opium to his Treasury chariot, he may find a way to balance the Chinese budget for some time to come. 
Because then uh, Sterling Seagrave goes on to write, because of the complexity of trying to divide the sources, growing areas, transportation, processing responsibilities, and so forth, the only sensible solution was to split the overall take with Tu Yuesheng. Accordingly, the Generalissimo had a long meeting with Tu in which he began by reappointing, in which he began by appointing the gang boss as chief communist suppression agent for Shanghai, which gave Tu an official sanction to spill all the blood he wanted legally. This was something Tu needed very badly because he was in the midst of a campaign to clean up his public image. Chang cut a deal with Tu to team up on opium. The Green Gang would be given full government protection for all shipments and all processing factory operations. The gang would also have veto power over the selection of government monopoly officials and would take a lion's share of the proceeds. In return, the gang agreed to pay Nanking six million Chinese dollars as a down payment on the government's anticipated share of the next take. Uh, that's the reality of uh, T.B. Sung, who again was lionized by Henry Luce. One of the selling points for Chiang Kai-shek and also to Yuesheng was their conversion to Christianity. We spoke about that uh, in our last program. And uh, Henry Luce had a soft spot for him uh, for uh, basically business tycoons. And that was, it was his persona, public persona, as a business tycoon, and again, T.B. Sun was at one point the richest man in the world, uh, reportedly the largest stockholder in either DuPont and or General Motors, and that gave him the tycoon's image. In fact, he was consummately corrupt, and uh, as Sterling Seagrave put it in the afterword to the Sung dynasty, the entire family, A-Ling Sung, A.J.H. Kung, T.B. Sung, his brothers T.L. and T.A. Sung, uh, Mei-Ling Sung, a.k.a. Madame Chiang Kai-shek, uh, the entire family he described, Sterling Seagrave described, as like a, gang, a family of pickpockets or a gang of pickpockets working at county fair while the rubes watched Geeks bite the heads off live chickens. One of the, well, we were the rudes. One of the people helping to uh, do that was the barker of that carnival, of that, that uh, county fair, Henry Luce. Uh, turning to Henry Luce and his lionization of TV Sung, uh, because of his persona as a tycoon, Henry Luce was paying off on a promise given the previous year when he had come personally to Shanghai to interview TV. During these long conversations at TV's house in the French concession, Luce had urged Sung to come to the United States where he would find a warm reception in the American financial community and among U.S. government leaders. The chance for such a trip materialized with an invitation to attend the World Economic Conference in London. TV would proceed from London to New York and then Washington, D.C. Luce had timed the lavish Fortune magazine profile for the eve of Sung's arrival. It was also arranged for TV to make a major radio address to Americans over the NBC network from London. Henry Luce's trip to China in May of 1932 had been his first time in that country since his missionary boyhood 20 years earlier. The publisher went out on the town with American friends, touring the Blue Chamber District and dancing at Cabaret till 2 a.m. with the white Russian Dime Dance Girls. 
He flew to Nanking and Hankow, huddling with bankers, American oil men, and missionaries. In Peking, he visited Yenching University, where his missionary father had helped, which his missionary father had helped finance. Everywhere he went, the stupefying misery of daily life in China appeared in his mind in romantic, glorious color the way it had in childhood memories. The drabest, most depressing scenes were not drab or depressing to him. And uh, to give you an idea of very quickly what a life was like in uh, the China of Chiang Kai-shek, and uh, this was following World War One. Uh, speaking of Shanghai, the city grew along the river and sprawled across the countryside. It ate slums in its path and spat out still more on its flanks. Small 19th century buildings along the Bund were replaced by stone towers, hence housing the Chartered Bank, the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, now the HSBC, Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation, and banks from New York and London. Other new buildings housed international oil companies and the noble houses of the, of the Taipans. The first Chinese department stores came into existence, floor after floor jammed with dry goods and foreign luxuries. The Nanking Road glittered like Broadway at night. Motor cars replaced horse-drawn carriages and pushed through crowds like rhinos at a waterhole. Around them, rickshaws swirled like herds of longhorned antelope. The old British club, with its gin-soaked veranda facing the river, was replaced by a stone club that would have pleased any West End Tory. This was the element of China that Henry Luce saw. What he ignored was this. But there was another side to this prosperity. The long hours, the poor wages, and the grim conditions for the Chinese who lived and died in the factories. Boys and girls less than 10 years old worked as slaves 13 hours a day and dropped in exhaustion to sleep on rags beneath the machines. They were sold to factories and could not leave the garbage grounds night or day. Everywhere in the streets lay the bodies of the destitute, corpses of starved children and unwanted babies. In any year from 1920 to 1940, as many as 29,000 bodies were picked out of the city's alleyways, fished from the sewers, canals, and rivers. None of this was hidden from sight. For China as a whole, the ouster of the Manchu dynasty had not made life better. If anything, it was worse. Instead of a central government, however despised, the Middle Kingdom had broken up into fragments ruled by warlords and militarists. Skirmishes between their private armies laid waste the countryside. Farm production plummeted. Rice and wheat had to be imported, producing great profits for businessmen who hoarded to boost prices. Famine brought the people to their knees. They ate bark off trees and expired in city streets and country lanes. Rumors circulated of human flesh for sale in markets. Children were sold into slavery by hags along rural roads and vanished into brothels or factories. And that was uh, the reality that Henry Luce basically was able to ignore. 
and uh, one of his uh, associates at Yale. The trouble with Harry, observed the writer Laura V. Hobson, wife of one of his classmates at Yale, is that he's torn between wanting to be a Chinese missionary like his parents and a Chinese warlord like Chiang Kai-shek. And skipping down... The editorial control of Time magazine at first had been in the hands of co-founder Britton Haddon, H-A-B-B-E-N, but Haddon had died in 1929, opening the way for Luce to launch strenuous offenses against Russia and in favor of Mussolini and Chiang Kai-shek. The Generalissimo first appeared on Time's cover in April of 1927. It was only the first of many cover appearances. And skipping down, by the spring of 1933, when TV Sung was ready to visit America, Luce was rapidly becoming the world's most powerful publisher. With him to take care of their public relations and image building in America, the Sungs, Changs, and Kungs were in for a sensational ride. The fortune treatment of TV showed how it would be done. According to the article, TV Sung shuffled, quote, by air between Shanghai and Nanking, a hundred miles away. When Chiang Kai-shek wanted funds for his army, as frequently happened, TV would board his amphibian in Shanghai and zoom up the endless valley of the Yangtze. In the capital, Chiang would meet him and insist he was losing face, unquote, because he couldn't afford a gesture toward the upstart ruler of a certain province. Sung would rage and roar, swear the money was not to be found, bully and badger his brother-in-law into getting along with what he had. But for all that, Sung would leap into his plane and fly back to Shanghai there to discuss the whole matter with the bankers in Shanghai. More about that in a minute. Luce characterized P.V. Sung as a cartoon super tycoon. Luce had a soft spot for superheroes that enabled him practically to venerate Chiang Kai-shek. The hero worshipper in him, said his biographer W.A. Swanberg, S-W-A-N-B-E-R-G, responded to the fascist Superman who could inspire the allegiance and cooperation of the masses. He pointed to the success of Mussolini in revitalizing the aristocratic principle in Italy, quote, a state reborn by virtue of fascist symbols, fascist rank, and hence fascist enterprise, unquote. Luce admired strong regimes in which the, quote, best people, unquote, ruled for the good of all. Communism, in his view, was the deliberate elimination of the best to permit government by the worst. In Benito Mussolini, he saw such greatness and in fascism, such dramatic political innovations that he could not contain his excitement. And continuing with uh, Sterling Seagrave's account, the business tycoon, Luce believed, was America's answer to the need for fascism. If the good were successful, it followed that the unsuccessful were not good. He found justice in the survival of the fittest and saw quite clearly that a society built on greed was more dynamic than one built on charity. The moral force of fascism, Luce pronounced, appearing in totally different forms in different nations, may be the inspiration for the next general march of mankind, unquote. 
And again, although you won't hear about it very often, uh, Henry Luce was a doctrinaire fascist, and it was uh, Life magazine that purchased and then uh, left films deliberately out of the Zapruder film of JFK's assassination. Now, uh, it... Um, the, the remarkable account of Henry Lewis of TV Sung's uh, dealings with the uh, banking community uh, of Shanghai, uh, with, well, that was in Fortune magazine. The reality was very, very different. And when numerous businessmen in Shanghai began complaining about the state of the banks, H.H. Uh, H. Kung, again, who was T.V. Sung's brother-in-law, married to the sinister Machiavellian Ailing Sung, uh, the older sister of Mei Ling Sung, M.A.E., who became Madame Chiang Kai-shek, H.H. H. Kung immediately launched a whispering campaign against the two big banks. Speaking one at a time to unhappy businessmen, H.H. H. insinuated that all of the problems besetting China were the doing of the big bankers. That was why businessmen were unable to get loans, why money was so tight, and why interest rates were so high. He and A. Ling spent their own money lavishly to entertain these gullible babbits of Shanghai, their minds clouded by dismal financial worries, and drove a wedge of suspicion between them and their own bankers. T.V. Sung chimed in, so did Tu Yuesheng. Banking magnate Tu Yuesheng sponsored a series of conferences that February for Shanghai business leaders. Tu and H.H. promised that business in general would be greatly improved and easy, low-interest loans would be forthcoming if a three-bank consortium could be formed, combining the Central Bank of China, the Bank of China, and the Bank of Communications. It was carefully made to seem as if this was just their private pipe dream. Many bankers were lulled by the tone of the meetings. Suddenly, and without warning, the government in Nanking announced on March 23, 1935, that it would immediately take over the Bank of China and the Bank of Communications. Kung justified the move by saying speciously that it was necessary to increase the credit capacity of the banks so they could make more loans to businessmen to fight the Depression. Once the takeover was complete, Kung forgot, unquote, about relief loans for Chinese businesses. As reward for his part in the coup, T.V. Sung was made chairman of the board of the Bank of China, replacing Chang Kianao's K-I-A-N-G-A-U. One more time. As reward for his part in the coup, T.V. Sung was made chairman of the board of the Bank of China, replacing Chang Ki Mao. Keeping a straight face, T.V. Sung informed the press that, quote, the object of the government, unquote, in seizing the two biggest private banks was simply, quote, to coordinate on policy, unquote. Chang Ki Mao was demoted to the post of second assistant manager of the Central Bank of China, a position directly under H.H. H. Kung. He pleaded with Chiang Kai-shek. The banker who had stood up to the Peking warlords was humiliated by the Ningpao Napoleon, i.e. Chiang Kai-shek. He announced that he was too, quote, fatigued, unquote, to accept the government appointment at the Central Bank. The coup was, the banking coup was complete. Chiang Kai now eventually retired to Los Angeles, where he taught at Loyola. Kung then completed the formalities with the bank's stockholders by the use of pressure, intimidation, and compromise. 
the Bank of China's new board was elected on March 30th. Among the new directors of the Bank of China were T.V. Sung, his brother T.L. Sung, and Big Ear 2, Tu Yuesheng. When the Bank of Communications held its first stockholders meeting after the coup, T.L. Sung was on its board as well. Both T.V. and T.L. Sung acquired seats on the board of the Central Bank. The bank coup of March was followed by the methodical subversion of three other important Shanghai commercial banks that June. The Ningpo Commercial and Savings Bank, the Commercial Bank of China, and the National Industrial Bank of China suddenly found that their credit had, quote, collapsed, unquote, and that they were unable to redeem their banknotes. The government forced the managers to resign. All three banks were placed under the supervision of H. H. Kung's Manufacturers Bank, on the board of which sat T. L. Sung, T. A. Sung, and T. V. Sung. It's all of them, of course, brothers. Bigger too, Tu Yuasheng became the new chairman of the board of the Commercial Bank. Pardon me for laughing, but this is—it it really is remarkable. Bigger too, Tu Yuasheng became the new chairman of the board of the Commercial Bank. Nanking also gained control of the Sinwa Trust and Savings Bank. T.V. Sung was named to its board. The Bank of Canton, which according to a whispering campaign was, quote, running into financial difficulties, unquote, was, quote, saved, unquote, by T.V. and reopened with him as chairman of the board and T.A. Sung as a director. T.L. Sung became the new director of the Agricultural and Industrial Bank of China. When banks in Guangdong province then fell under Nanking's control, T.L. Sung was named director of the Guangdong Provincial Bank and the Canton Municipal Bank. The list went on and on as bank after bank, then company after company, came under control of the Sung clan. These were not the only interesting posts held by T.V. Sung's younger brothers. The youngest, T.A., who also had attended Harvard getting his B.A. in 1928, was in charge of the salt monopoly, and its army of 30,000 was commanded by the brother of T.V. Sung's wife, Laura. T.L. Sung, the Vanderbilt graduate, was managing director of H.H. H. Kung's Manufacturers Bank. T.L. was also the head of the Wang, po, uh, Wang Pu Conservancy Board with jurisdiction over Shanghai Harbor, which was dominated by the Green Gang. Everything that happened on the Shanghai waterfront was the business of Big Ear 2's man, Ku Tzu Xuan. That's capital T-S-U hyphen C-H-U-A-N. The mere mention of his name was said to strike terror into the hearts of the worst cutthroats on the China Sea coast. Although it was not widely known and certainly not talked about, this Waterfront gangster was the older brother of one of Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek's senior military officers, General Ku Chu Tung, who eventually rose to be chief of the general staff and because of the new Fourth Army incident, one of the most hated men in China. We're going to talk about that at some length. That was uh, General Ku Chu Tung's ambush of the new Fourth Army. Uh, that was uh, an army put together by uh, Mao Zedong to attack the Japanese. It was ambushed by the Kuomintang armies uh, who were collaborating in many ways with the Japanese and with the Green Gang. More about that later. Now, um, 
talking about the brothers of uh, T.B. Sung, uh, one of the very, very, very interesting connections here, and we're going to talk about this uh, at greater length uh, throughout the, the at greater length in, in various parts of the series we're doing. Again, from the Sung Dynasty, the Middle Sung brother, the Middle Sung brother T.L who had been in charge of Lend-Lease during World War II and whose American roots were in New York. Beginning again. The middle brother, T.L., who had been in charge of Lend-Lease during World War II and whose American roots were in New York City, became something of an enigma. Sources in Washington said T.L. worked as a secret consultant to the Treasury Department in the 1950s, engaged in what they would not say. Treasury claims it has no record of a T.L. Sung whatsoever. Uh, that is more than a little interesting. Uh, we're going to uh, come back to that later on in the series when we talk about the uh, looting of the uh, Bank of China, the Chinese gold deposits in the wake of the successful uh, Chinese civil war, won by the, the, the civil war won by Mao Zedong's armies. Now, of uh, Lend-Lease, bear in mind that T. L. Sung was in charge of Lend-Lease. We're going to talk about uh, one of the major sources of graft for the Sung family was Lend-Lease. Hundreds of millions of American dollars, uh, exactly how much remains to be seen because of uh, so much of the report uh, compiled by the FBI continued to be redacted in 1983. But a lot of that Lend-Lease money went into the pockets of the Sung family. There was one shipment of 60 American tanks that supposedly was on a freighter that was torpedoed. In fact, there was no shipment whatsoever. Uh, it went right into the pockets of the Sung family. So bear in mind, again, the middle Sung, the middle Sung brother, T.L., who had been in charge of Lend-Lease during World War II and whose American roots were in New York City, became something of an enigma. Sources in Washington said T.L. worked as a secret consultant to the Treasury Department in the 1950s, engaged in what they would not say. Treasury claims it has no record of a T.L. song, whatever. Uh, bear in mind that, again... Um, the Shanghai waterfront was run by Big Ear Two or Two Yu Shang's uh, man Ku Chu Shuan, whose older brother was General Ku Chu Tong, uh, who eventually became the top general in the Kuomintang Army, which again was uh, staffed by officers who were graduates of the Wampo Military Academy, basically run like everything else in China, by the Green Gang. One of the things we spoke about in our last program and that we're going to come back to, something we've spoken about uh, at, at various uh, points in this series, uh, and that is the collaboration of Chiang Kai-shek with the Japanese invaders. One of the things that led to the takeover of China by Mao Zedong. In further record 1142, uh, we talked about uh, the consummately important Kadama Yoshio, who was a major 
uh, kingpin of the dope traffic uh, in China and also in Japan and uh, Taiwan. And uh, he also worked very closely with the various uh, Japanese, uh, various uh, nationalist Chinese generals or Kuomintang generals and the Green Gang and uh, this entire concatenation, the Sung family at all. Speaking of Kadami Yosha, from the book Gold Warriors, America's Secret Recovery of Yamashita's Gold by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. Speaking of Kadami Yoshio, he closed a deal with waterfront boss Kutsu Chuan to swap heroin for gold throughout the Yangtze Valley. Thanks to Ku's brother, Kuomintang Senior General Ku Chu Tong, Japan also gained access to U.S. lend-lease supplies reaching western China by way of the Burma Road or on aircraft flying over the hump from India. Once in warehouses in Kunming or Chongqing, the lend-lease was resold to the Japanese army with Kodama as purchasing agent. Again, for someone who grew up with, with victory at sea, uh, and, and really someone who grew up with reverence for the Allied combatants of World War II, as I said in an earlier show, uh, I feel like the little kid who uh, spoke to shoeless Joe Jackson of the 1919 Chicago White Sox uh, when uh, they became the Black Sox after throwing the 1919 World Series to the Cincinnati Reds. And uh, the kid said uh, to shoeless Joe Jackson, Oh, Joe, say it ain't so. And Shoeless Joe said, It's true, kid, all of it. And the kid replied to his tears, Well, I never would have thunk it. And again, that's just you know, when I think about the, the uh, heroism of the U.S. flyers who flew over the hump uh, or who drove the Burma Road and they sacrificed enormously, <laughs> going right into the pockets of the Green Gang and being transshipped, sold to the Japanese. It is just Mind-boggling, I guess. Although sometimes I see it as uh, immaturity. Uh, I guess it, it, it is worthwhile that uh, I haven't completely lost my uh, capacity for outrage about that. So T. L. Song was in charge of Lend-Lease during World War II and uh, reportedly worked as a secret agent for the Treasury Department after the war. We're going to come back to that Later. Now, as I mentioned, as we're going to get into now, we may not have time to get, get all of this into the uh, books, so to speak, uh, or all of this into the can uh, by the end of the show, uh, but uh, we will continue with this next week. Chiang Kai-shek himself was a doctrinaire fascist, and he uh, networked with and received assistance from both Hitler and Mussolini, a German general named Hans von Seicht, who uh, put together the Truppen Generalstab uh, in the 1920s for the Reichswehr, the German army between the world wars, became a top general of Hitler, and he was the commander, uh, the chief strategist of Chiang Kai-shek's anti-communist crusade in the 1930s. The Seagraves write about this, or Sterling Seagraves writes about this in the Song Dynasty. The military campaign Mei Lung, a.k.a. Mei Ling, a.k.a. Uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, described, was engineered for Chiang Kai-shek by one of the best-known strategists of Nazi Germany, General Hans von Seck, that's capital S-E-E-C-K-T. When Hitler came to power in 1933, Chiang asked for military help. 
Hitler sent von Seicht, and Lieutenant General George Wetzel, W-E-T-Z-E-L-L. The Generalissimo's determination to fight communists rather than Japanese was to Hitler's liking. Von Seicht worked out an expensive strategy. Excuse me, one more time. Von Seicht worked out an expensive no, it is expensive. It was expensive, but <laughs> everything was expensive. <laughs> well, we would change our fact. Von Seik worked out an expensive strategy, which obliged Chang to dig deeper than expected into TV Sung's bank vault, leading to a bitter quarrel in August of 1934. It was Von Seik, or Von beginning, it was Von Seik who asked Chang to have hundreds of miles of roads built into the Red Sanctuary in Kyangshi. And it was von Seicht who had thousands of concrete fortifications built and moved in tanks and armored cars under heavy of, under cover of heavy air and artillery bombardment. Once again, it was von Seicht who had thousands of concrete fortifications built and moved in tanks and armored cars under cover of heavy air and artillery bombardment. As the Kuomintang ground forces inched forward, more concrete bunkers were built, and Chang's enemies were gradually encircled. Von Seik's strategy brought famine to the mountain populations, and his scorched earth tactics devastated the towns and villages. Estimates of the dead varied widely. Edmund Club, CLU-BB, said 700,000 Kuomintang troops participated against 150,000 communist guerrillas. Edgar Snow said the communists suffered 60,000 casualties and that, in all, a million people were either murdered or starved to death. Of that million dead, therefore, at least 940,000 were not, quote, communist bandits. Unquote. Again, that was uh, General Hans von Seik, one of the, the chief strategists of the early Nazi regime, and he was one of the chief architects of Chiang Kai-shek's anti-communist war. And we'll uh, talk more about uh, the doctrinaire anti-communism of Chiang Kai-shek. That was one of the things that endeared him to Henry Luce and to the West in general and to the China lobby. It was also one of the things that lost China, because even TV Sung himself, who was hardly a shrinking violet, said in no uncertain terms that if Chiang Kai-shek didn't fight the Japanese, he would drive the Chinese people into the arms of the communists, and that is what happened. Now, uh, of the liaison between Chiang Kai-shek and his government and both Hitler and Mussolini, the aforementioned H.H. H. Kung, married to A. Ling Sung, uh, one of the uh, remarkable Sung family, he engineered a number of uh, arms deals with both Hitler and Mussolini, returning again to the Sung dynasty. The Kungs, that's both H.H. H. Kung and A. Ling Sung, then sailed to Europe and the most important part of their trip, the booming German arms industry. H.H. H. arranged to purchase $25 million U.S. in weapons from Germany. Then, since, by the way, that's $25 million in uh, 1940s dollars, uh, really late 1930s dollars. Uh, that no, actually it was early 1930s dollars. That was a lot of money in those days. Uh, when I talk about hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, 
uh, when lease money vanishing into the uh, financial maw of the Sung and uh, Kuomintang uh, monster. That's hundreds of millions of dollars in 1940s dollars. That is a huge amount of money. One more time. And this is in uh, 1932. Actually, this is just after 1932. The Kungs then sailed to Europe and the most important part of their trip, the booming German arms industry. H.H. arranged to purchase 25 million U.S. dollars in weapons from Germany. Then, since fascism was fashionable and his brother-in-law, Chiang Kai-shek, was one of its leading exponents, H.H. decided to visit Benito Mussolini. He was preceded into Venice by A. Ling, his wife. Uh, Madam H. H. Kung, A. Ling Sung, the elder sister of T. V. Sung. Mussolini's welcoming party greeted her ship in a launch completely covered with flowers. A. Ling remarked demurely, quote, it was lovely, but I was nervous at having such a fuss made over me, unquote. This is a woman who ran teams of assassins, and she really was the power behind H. H. Kung, and a, a dominant force, uh, her children and two U.S. Shane's children grew up together. One more time. A. Lang Sung remarked demurely, It was lovely, but I was nervous at having such a fuss made over me. Unquote. When H.H. arrived, he cut a deal whereby the two million dollars U.S. Bal- the two million U.S. dollars balance of Boxer Rebellion indemnities still owed to Italy would be used to buy fiat warplanes. Mussolini left it to his handsome, swarthy son-in-law, Count Ciano, his minister to China, to arrange the details. Italian assistance to the infant Chinese Air Force was expanded to include a school to train pilots at Luoyang and a Fiat aircraft assembly plant in Nanchang. Kung's, quote, success, unquote, in Germany and Italy was not surprising. Hitler's Third Reich was just getting started, and wanted suitable right-wing customers for its arms. Italy was the leading light among fascist nations. Compared to the established Mussolini, Hitler was a mere tyro who visited Italy in an ill-fitting suit and scuffed shoes. That, of course, was to change. Mussolini, by then, had already leveled the streets of Rome, cleaned out its slums, and returned the ancient capital to its classical open grandeur. While T.V. Sung was trying to persuade Chang to forget the Chinese communists and defend China against Japanese aggression, more about that later, the Japanese, the Germans, and the Italians were all encouraging Chang to love Japan and kill Reds. Both Italy and Germany were anxious to cultivate allies. China was particularly important because it formed the eastern border of Soviet Russia. It was axiomatic that if Russia could be kept busy on the east, she was less of a threat in the west. The Generalissimo daily became more enamored of the Nazi military and police state. Eventually, he sent his younger son, Wei Kuo, W-E-I hyphen K-U-O, you also see that, Wei Go, to be schooled by the Nazis. Wei Kuo became a second lieutenant in the 98th Jaeger Regiment, and before returning to China took part in the invasion of Austria in 1938. That's one of Chiang Kai-shek's son. One more time. Eventually, he, Chiang Kai-shek, sent his younger son, Wei Kuo, to be schooled by the Nazis. 
where Cole became a second lieutenant in the 98th Geiger Regiment and before returning to China, took part in the invasion of Austria in 1938. And uh, Chiang Kai-shek himself was a doctrinaire fascist. Uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, he resonated so beautifully with Hitler and Mussolini and the Japanese. Uh, there was the New Life Movement that was uh, minted by his wife, and it basically uh, Chinese women who wore makeup and uh, dressed like Western women, uh, people who spat in the streets were uh, basically very harshly by members of the New Life Movement, but that was just the superficial element of Chiang Kai-shek's doctrinaire fascism. That is described by the by uh, Sterling Seagrave in the Song Dynasty as follows. Like Mussolini, Chiang was determined to scrub his nation clean, teach the peasants not to spit, and make the trains run on time. Like Hitler, he was determined to get rid of all social and political perverts and discipline the citizens, even if it took a few severe beatings. Chang believed that fascism stood on three legs, nationalism, absolute faith in the maximum leader with a capital M and a capital L there, and the Spartan militarization of the citizens. One more time, as, as noted, uh, Chang was one of fascism's leading exponents. That was one of the things that helped to foster the resonance between the Kungs and Mussolini and Hitler. Like Mussolini, Chang was determined to scrub his nation clean, take the peasants, teach the peasants not to spit, and make the trains run on time. Like Hitler, he was determined to get rid of all social and political perverts and discipline the citizens, even if it took a few severe beatings. Chang believed that fascism stood on three legs, nationalism, absolute faith in the maximum leader, and the Spartan militarization of the citizens. The New Life Movement was the popular manifestation of Chang's fascism, a toy for both his wife, Mei Ling, and the missionaries, and it was comic enough not to be taken seriously by foreigners in general. The missionaries ignoring the warnings expressed by their own periodicals at the time of Chang's baptism, were now eagerly climbing aboard the New Life bandwagon. Forgotten were the days when Chang's regime had been perceived as an adversary of missionary endeavor. And again, the basic position of the U.S. and the West in general was the missionary position. Pun intended. Continuing. Chang's fascination with Hitler resulted in the creation of a new secret society modeled on Hitler's brown shirts and Mussolini's black shirts. Chang called his the blue shirts, though he denied their existence repeatedly. They were an offshoot of his two secret services, the Party Gestapo under the Chen brothers and the military secret police under Tai Li, also known as the Himmler of China. Chang came to depend heavily on the two nephews of his Green Gang mentor, the assassinated revolutionary hero Chen Shi Mei, the older nephew, Chen Kuo Fu, who had organized and headed the drive that recruited 7,000 Green Gang youths to the Wampo Military Academy, had since then been given the responsibility of setting up a Gestapo organization within the Kuomintang. As head of the Kuomintang's organization department, his job was to purify the party 
and the Nanking government continually. To guarantee the loyalty of each party member, Shen Kuo Fu built a spy network that touched every government agency. To run this new apparatus, he selected his younger brother, Chen Li Fu. Both the Chen brothers were, quote, blood brothers of Chiang Kai-shek, having taken part in a green gang ceremony after the death of their uncle. Of the two, elder brother Kuo Fu was considered the more intelligent, the more cunning, and the more diversified. He wrote plays and songs for his own amusement. He paid Li Fu's way to America, where younger brother studied mining at the University of Pittsburgh. But Li Fu abandoned mining in 1928 to become the director of Chang's Secret Service, the Central Bureau of Investigation and Statistics, or CBIS, the euphemism chosen for the Kuomintang's political secret police, basically the Gestapo. While the CBIS spied, conducted purges, and political executions within the party, large-scale public terrorism of the province of its military counterpart, the Military Bureau of Investigation and Statistics, or NBIS, run by China's Himmler, Tai Lius, capital T-A-I, capital L-I, as also see that capital T-I, capital L-I, one more time. While the CBIS spied, conducted purges, and political executions within the party, large-scale public terrorism was the province of its military counterpart, the Military Bureau of Investigation and Statistics, or NBIS, run by China's Himmler, Tai Li, for 20 years the most dreaded man in China. Here was yet another of the Generalissimo's Chekiang comrades. Born in 1895, Tai Li has spent his youth as a green gang aide to Big Ear Chu, Chu Yuesheng, and was educated at Chu Yuesheng's personal expense. In 1926, he was one of the green gang recruits enrolled at Wampo Military Academy. During the Northern Expedition, he was the principal contact between Chiang Kai-shek and the small-town hoodlums of the green gang. As the army approached each district on its way north, Chinese Communist Party cadres went ahead to rouse the peasants to attack the local warlord garrison, and Tai Li went ahead to alert the Green Gang dust squads to attack the Chinese Communist Party cadres from behind. With the establishment of the Nanking regime, Tai Li was given responsibility for counter-espionage against Japanese agents in China, and for orchestrating the white terror against communist cells. All clandestine operations in China, except those conducted by the Chins, were his responsibility during the 1930s. He was a deceptively mild-looking man with a high, rounded brow and a pleasant smile, but he was regarded by connoisseurs as extremely treacherous. Pai Li commanded more than 100,000 government agents and possibly twice that number were at his disposal from Green Gang ranks. Both of these secret police organizations were supplemented by Chang's blue shirts. Although it was a replica of the European fascist cults, the blue shirts also emulated Japan's dreaded Black Dragon Society, the most militant secret cult of the Imperial Army. The blue shirts 
job was to reform China the hard way by knocking heads together, carrying out political assassinations, liquidating corrupt bureaucrats, and enemies of the state, unquote. Its members numbered 10,000. They were officered by old Green Gang classmates from Wampo. All of the powerful cliques in the Nanking regime were represented in the Blue Shirts membership. Included were members of the CC clique, headed by the Chen brothers and named after the initials of the Central Club at Nanking, and the so-called Wampo clique, headed by Defense Minister Ho Ying Chin. Finally, the Blue Shirts were professional killers who owed loyalty not to the party or the army, but to Tai Li and Big Eared Two, to Yue Shang. Shang made them all take part in the ceremony of blood brotherhood, pricking hands, and mingling chromosomes. The whole country was to be militarized, unquote, wrote Brian Crozier, for many years China correspondent of The Economist, from the kindergarten to the grave. Their aim was unabashedly totalitarian, and although Chiang Kai-shek continued to the end with apparent sincerity to protest his devotion to democracy, there can be no doubt that he identified himself with the blue shirts, whose members included Nembi, members, beginning again, there can be no doubt that he identified himself with the blue shirts, whose members included many of his Wampo Academy cadets. The new life movement of which Song Mei Ling was so proud and to which her husband had agreed so readily was merely a public extension of the blue shirts, a way of involving the Chinese Boy Scouts, the YMCA, and the foreign mission societies in Chang's drive to discipline China. By 1936, the blue shirts were running amok, driven by excesses of zeal and brutality, giving the new life movement a bad name. The Literary Digest observed that year, quote, most likely to upset the teacups were Chang's own civilian, anti-foreign, bombing, stabbing, shooting, blue-shirt terrorists who, once useful, now unmanageable, had become something of a Frankenstein monster, unquote. When the Chen brothers, secret political police, the CBIS, tortured and strangled General Peng Yenta, Ching Ling was not the only one shocked that she was Madame Sun Yat-sen, a, a, a Sung sister. She married Sun Yat-sen, and later, although she never became a communist, uh, became a supporter of Mao Zedong. Uh, she, as she put it, I distrust all politicians. I distrust Mao Zedong less than I distrust the others. Continuing. One of Chiang Kai-shek's oldest and staunchest supporters now had enough. He was the former head of Peking University, Tsai Wanpei, who had been the right-wing leader of the Restoration League. Until now, he had faithfully served Chang and his Green Gang godfathers and had read the certificate of marriage at the wedding of Chiang Kai-shek and Mei Ling Sung. Tsai had been rewarded with the job of president of the Control Yuan, one of the five branches of the Nanking government. He had also been Minister of Education in charge of reorganizing the nation's university system. But as he watched the new regime in action, Tsai began to suspect that he had helped midwife a monster. Everywhere, he saw human rights being violated. Unlike many other rightists, Tsai was an accomplished scholar 
and a humanist, it was impossible for him to wear blinders indefinitely. After lengthy soul-searching, he resigned his principal government posts and established the Academia Sinica, the, the highest institution of advanced study and research in China. Tsai openly sided with Ching Ling, a.k.a. Madhu Sun Yat-sen, against Chiang Kai-shek, joining her in founding the China League for Civil Rights. The primary purpose of the League was to fight Chiang's insidious campaign to portray all his opponents as communists. By so doing, Chiang was able to arrest, imprison, torture, purge, or execute anyone he wished with the apparent blessing of all, quote, reasonable and decent people, unquote, thanks to the prevailing paranoia about Reds. One of the League's first efforts was to free from prison the former head of the Chinese Communist Party, Chen Chu Shu, a harmless and now rather pathetic figure who had once been dean of the Peking University College of Letters. All of their efforts failed. When the League was less than a year old, one of the Tsai Wan Pei's closest associates at the Academy at, at the Academy at Sinica, the politically active Cornell-trained engineer Yang Chuan was murdered by the Blue Shirts. He had been dangerously outspoken. Well acquainted with everyone from Chiang Kai-shek to Big Ear Two, he knew the inner workings of the Nanking regime. In 1933, he apparently discovered the secret reason why Chiang and Defense Minister Ho were not protesting the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, the invasion of Jeho, and the breaching of the Great Wall. It was enough to get Yang murdered. Immediately, Tsai Wanpei was shocked. He resigned all his remaining government posts, issued a public statement expressing disgust with the regime, and withdrew completely from public life. The extreme was soon reached with begin again. The extreme was soon reached with the horrific end of six of China's foremost writers, all followers of the leading literary figure of the revolution. That was the 1911 uh, revolution led by Sun Yat-sen, overthrowing the Manchu dynasty, Lu Xun. He was a short, dark figure with warm eyes and a tragic sense of the nation's grief. And skipping down. Lu Xun had been unrestrained in his criticism of the Nanking regime, and he was always in hiding in fear of arrest. Although friendly with many of the leading Chinese communists, he was too skeptical to become a communist himself. He and Xing Ling were soulmates and perennial outsiders. It was not a healthy position to take. Chiang Kai-shek finally had had enough of Ching Ling, Lu Xun, and the circle of writers around them who called themselves the League of Left Writers. He ordered his secret police to arrest the writers. Lu Xun eluded arrest, but six young leaders of the group, including Feng Kung, China's best-known woman writer, were taken into custody and forced to dig a large pit. They were tied hand and foot, thrown into the pit, and buried alive. That, said Ching Ling Sung, a.k.a. Madame Sun Yat-sen, is our generalissimo, burying our best young people alive. Evidently, in his Bible studies, he has not yet reached the Corinthians, unquote. And uh, more about uh, this in our next program. However, we are all out of 
time. This concludes for the record program number 1199, the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, part 6. This is being recorded on August 13th of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.